We've been looking at the life of Abraham as he walks with God for 10 chapters in Genesis. And one truth that has stood out to us is that we are really to be a people who, who walk by faith and not by sight. Abraham, uh, not so good early on, much better as he went along. And we, we want to be much better as we go along to walk by faith. So my question for this morning is, do people look at you, your life, the things you say and the things you do, and say that you must be living for something they cannot see? Do others observe your values and preferences and devotions and find no earthly explanation for you to value, prefer, and devote yourself to those things? And therefore, they surmise that you must be living by faith with hope. Not because they think that's good and they want to be like us, but because it's the only way to explain our strange behavior and to teach their children how to stay away from those people. I ask this because I think that's how people would respond to Christians who walk by faith. I think that's what they'd think. We're looking at three accounts of walking by faith this morning in chapter 23, 24, and the first half of 25 in Genesis. And there's, there's no surprise that they deal with the three promises that God has covenanted with Abraham. The promise of land, the promise of seed, the promise of blessing. Over the last ten chapters, in several weeks, we've, God has convinced us that he will bring about those three blessings. Nod your head. We are, we are certain, having studied what we've studied, that God will bring about those blessings and uh, that uh, we are to, we're to walk in faith and hope in them, knowing that they are all going to be fulfilled in the Lord Jesus Christ. And since we're familiar with those promises, I want to I this morning spend a little extra time examining some of the sub-themes in these three chapters as we walk through them. Because I think they will help us to walk by faith in the promises, providence, and blessings of God that are ours in Jesus Christ. So let me encourage you to follow along in the Bible, but also with your sermon outline where you'll find this theme, even death cannot stop the promises of God. But we must seek and pray for God's promised blessings, which are fulfilled only in Christ. He is our blessed hope. So let me begin by reading Genesis chapter 23, verses 1 to 20. I apologize if I'm reading fast this morning, but you'll thank me at the end and probably wish I read faster. Sarah lived 127 years. These were the years of the life of Sarah. And Sarah died at Kiriath Arba, that is Hebron, in the land of Canaan. And Abram went in to mourn for Sarah and to weep for her. And Abraham rose up from before his dead and said to the Hittites, I am a sojourner and foreigner among you. Give me property among you for a burying place that I may bury my dead out of my sight. The Hittites answered Abraham, Hear us, my lord, you are a prince of God among us. Bury your dead in the choicest of our tombs. No one of us will withhold from you his tomb to hinder you from burying your dead. Abraham rose and bowed down to the Hittites, the people of the land, and he said to them, If you are willing that I should bury my dead out of my sight, hear me and entreat for me Ephron, the son of Zohar, that he may give me the cave of Machpelah, which he owns, it is at the end of his field. For the full price, let him give it to me in your presence as property for a burying price. 
Now Ephron was sitting among the Hittites, and Ephron the Hittite answered Abraham in the hearing of the Hittites, of all who went into this gate of the city, No, my lord, hear me. I give you the field, and I give you the cave that is in it. In the sight of my sons of my people, I give it to you. Bury your dead. Then Abraham bowed down before the people of the land, and he said to Ephron, in the hearing of the people of the land, But if you will, hear me. I give you the price of the field. Accept it from me, that I may bury my dead there. Ephron answered, Abraham, My lord, listen to me. A piece of land worth 400 shekels of silver. What is that between you and me? Bury your dead. Abraham listened to Ephron, and Abraham weighed out for Ephron the silver that he had named in the hearing of the Hittites, 400 shekels of silver, according to the weights current among the merchants. So the field of Ephron in Machpelah became what is the, uh, which was to the east of Mamre, the field with the cave that was in it, and all the trees that were in the field throughout this whole area was made over to Abraham as a possession in the presence of the Hittites before all who went into the gate of the city. After this, Abraham buried Sarah, his wife, in the cave of the field of Machpelah, east of Mamre, that is, Hebron, in the land of Canaan. The field and the cave is in it, were made over to Abraham as property for a burying place by the Hittites. Now, Sarah's death is a significant death in Genesis. That may be an odd way to describe a death, but she's the first of Abraham's family to die. Hers is the first death and burial recorded in the Bible. And, and remember, Sarah is the matriarch of God's people, just as just as Father Abraham was the father and the, the patriarch of the Hebrews, Sarah was the matriarch of the Hebrews. So when Abraham's first readers, remember the Hebrews camped on the Jordan River, about to enter into the promised land of Canaan, he's, he's given them the Pentateuch, including Genesis. When they read this, we can almost imagine sort of, a, sort of a national day of mourning. The sense of loss of a collective people for their great matriarch. This is the Bible's first account of mourning the dead. This is the first time anyone mourns someone who's died. Abraham loved Sarah, and he mourned the loss of his wife. He's, he's known her all his life. She's his life partner who went with him when he left his family and home in Mesopotamia. She was his family, her and Isaac, in Canaan. You know, we don't see Isaac mourning, but certainly he was. What we do see is Abraham weeping and burying his wife. It is interesting that it only takes Moses three verses to tell us this. Look at verses 1 and 2. Sarah lived 127 years. These were the years of the life of Sarah. And Sarah died at Kiriath Arba, that is Hebron, in the land of Canaan. And Abraham went in to, Sarah, went in to mourn for Sarah and to weep for her. Skip down to verse 19 after this. Abraham buried Sarah, his wife, in the cave of the field of Machpelah, east of Mamre. That's it. It really only takes three verses to explain this narrative. So what are all the other verses about? It seems that where Sarah is buried is the thing that Moses really wants us to see, beginning in verse 3. You know, a few things are made obvious to us through repetition. Abraham wants to bury his dead. Barry is dead, Barry is dead, Barry is dead. We get that repetition. Here's a purpose here. And the Hittites are willing to help Abraham bury your dead, bury your dead, bury your dead. It's also obvious that Abraham doesn't have a burial plot. He's a 
He's a stranger from Mesopotamia and a sojourner. He does not own a single square inch of land in Canaan. In fact, he's not allowed to unless he's given special permission and then has to buy it. And the Hittites are the people of the land. Who are the people of the land? The Hittites, over and over. You're the people of the land, the land, the land. It's your land. It's not my land. Moses is clear that Abraham is a sojourner. They own all the land, the fields, the caves, the trees, the whole area, all of Canaan. And it's obvious that Abraham is negotiating a land purchase surrounded by witnesses at the gate, the place where legal business deals were struck. We see their plurality in words and phrases like the Hittites and among us, and he said to them, and he spoke in the hearing of all the Hittites and before all who went into the city gate. So there's a, there's a crowd of witnesses. And then we have these really interesting negotiations. And it might to us sound like genuine care for Abraham at the time of his loss, and even spontaneous generosity. But it's not. It's just the curious manner of negotiating in the ancient Near East. This very strange, odd, face-saving kind of manner of negotiating at that time. It does sound polite, and it's meant to be, but it is real estate. Abraham asks to buy a piece of property to bury Sarah. And uh, the answer is, oh, Abraham, you're, you're, you're a prince among us. You're just a great guy. Pick, pick any tomb that any of us own, and you bury your dead there. We give it to you. Just, just go ahead and do that. Now, that is accommodating of them, but it's not the same as Abraham owning a burial plot. Accepting a gift from them would be like accepting a gift from the king of Sodom. And Abraham rejects gifts from Canaanites. Abraham, following protocol, then respectfully asked to speak to one man, Ephron, and pay full price for the cave at Machpelah at the end of his field. And Ephron answers, Oh, no, Abraham, I'll give you the... He's asked to buy a burial plot. I'll give you the field. And the cave. So he's kind of just up the real estate deal, if you will. You see? Now he's not really going to give Abraham the cave. That's just his way of saying, I'll sell you the cave, but you have to buy the field with it. You see, you, wouldn't it just be cheaper for Abraham, after all, to just bury his dead in a borrowed tomb for free? Why not just do that? Abraham says, you're so generous, but please... Please, sell me the land. And so Ephraim says, price? What price? What's a piece of land that's worth 400 shekels between you and me? By the way, it's worth 400 shekels. Us, gentlemen. But Abraham weighs out the 400 shekels of silver and the deed for the land is made over to him having gone through all of the business protocols in front of all of these witnesses so that he can bury his dead. So he owns the land. So I want to I apply this in two ways. and uh, I'm already uncomfortable with my labels. I said theologically and practically. I, I think that the most practical thing we can have is a theology. I don't mean to put them against one another. I'm just trying to put them in some different classes here for us to think about. One is... Theologically, you might say that this is a down payment on the land that God's promised. That's what's going on here. 
God has promised all the land of Canaan to Abraham for his offspring. Abraham has faith in that promise of God, and now he legally owns a piece of it for the first time. The field and the trees and the cave at Machpelah. Abraham has faith in God and has provided, God has provided this first installment, this first little installment, the first fruits of Abraham's possession of all the land, which will come to his offspring. So Abraham has the sure and certain hope that God will give all the land to his descendants one day, and his descendants, the first readers of this account, remember them standing on Jordan's stormy banks, led by Joshua, are about to enter and take possession of the land commanded by God. And they know when they get into it, they will find one small field lined with trees and a burial cave in which not only is buried Sarah, but Abraham. And not only Sarah and Abraham, but Isaac and his wife Rebekah and Jacob and his wife Leah. Because it has always been promised to them. Not even death can bring an end to the promises of God because God's promises are everlasting. In perhaps a more daily practical sense, I think there's a sub-theme here that we could call hope of life in the promised land. You know, back in chapter 21, Abraham faced the test of banishing Ishmael. And in chapter 22, Abraham faced the test of offering Isaac as a sacrifice And here, in chapter 23, Abraham faces the test of where to bury Sarah. Most people go home to bury their dead. Where are you going to be buried? Well, I guess we'll go back home. Bury our folk there, where our folk came from. Abraham, why don't you go home and bury your dead? Take Sarah's body back to Mesopotamia and bury her there. But Abraham's not looking back to his old home in Mesopotamia. By faith, Abraham's looking forward to his home here in Canaan. It's not his yet, but it's going to be. With hope in the promises of God, Abraham wants to bury his wife in the home of their future offspring. This is where all the kids are going to come and put flowers on the grave. Here, in their homeland which has been promised to them. Turn to Hebrews chapter 11. I think you'll see this clearly. In Hebrews chapter 11, beginning in verse 13. You'll see Abraham looking ahead. Verse 13, these all died in faith. Abraham and Sarah died in faith, not having received the things promised, but having seen them and greeted them from afar and having acknowledged that they were strangers and exiles on the earth. For people who speak thus make it clear that they are seeking a homeland. If they had been thinking of that land from which they had come out, they would have had opportunity to return. But, as it is, they desire a better country. That is, a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God. For he has prepared for them a city. Living by faith looks different from living by sight. How does Abraham walk by faith in the tension of having just a small plot of land but being been promised all of it? You see, the Hittites live by sight, seeing only what is here and what is now. Why is Abraham so determined to buy a burial plot in a place that's not his home? Why is he so willing to pay such an exorbitant price? By the way, the, the amount of money, 400 shekels, for this plot is exorbitant. 
Because Abraham has seen the promises of God and he has embraced them from afar, way afar. Abraham has seen Christ, Galatians 3.16, and he believes the gospel. In John 8.56, Jesus said, Abraham saw my day and rejoiced in it. Abraham embraced the promised seed, who is Jesus Christ, and he believed the gospel. Abraham believed in the promises and knew that there was more to come. I've only bought this little plot, but there's more to come. His heart was not set on worldly things. His heart hoped for a better country. And the heavenly one, one that comes from God, God will give it to him, not to Canaanites, not Ephron the Hittite. And God was not ashamed to be called Abraham's God because he had already prepared a city for him. Abraham, the man of faith and hope. We need to walk by faith, not by sight. Saving faith sees further ahead than other people see. Like Abraham, we need to stand in the city gate and declare, I'm only a sojourner among you. This world is not our home. It's not. We're just sojourners for a short period of time. When we bury our believing dead, we grieve, but we grieve with hope. Abraham's grieving, but with hope. He believes the gospel. He believed that God could raise Isaac from the dead, and he believed that he could raise Sarah and him from the dead one day that they would enjoy the promised land. We are promised to be resurrected in Christ to everlasting life. Do not love the world and the things in the world. Live knowing that every spiritual blessing has been given us in Christ. And let your words attest to the Savior. That's what Abraham's doing. That's what Abraham's doing when he says, I'm just a sojourner here. That's what Abraham's doing when he buys this tiny piece of land at a ridiculous price to say, that, that's my home. Turn to Matthew chapter 10. Turn to Matthew chapter 10, beginning in verse 26. Listen to Jesus' words. So have no fear of them, verse 26, for nothing is covered that will not be revealed, nor hidden that will not be known. What I tell you in the dark, you say in the light. And what you hear whispered, proclaim on the housetops. And do not fear those who kill the body but cannot kill the soul. Rather, fear him who can destroy both soul and body in hell. Are not two sparrows sold for a penny and not one of them will fall to the ground apart from your father? But even the hairs of your head are all numbered. Fear not, therefore. You are more of more value than sparrows. So everyone who acknowledges me before men, I also will acknowledge before my Father who is in heaven. But whoever denies me before men, I will also deny before my Father who is in heaven. Live by faith in Jesus. Stand for his gospel. See your future. Embrace Christ. God is not ashamed to be your God. I mean, don't you think of the words that Paul used to describe the church in Corinth? Not many of you, <laughs> noble. Not many of you, wise. 
bunch of sinners, and yet, God is not ashamed to be their God. God gave His Son to redeem them and be their God. Hope in life in the promised land. This next chapter, I know this is going to kind of feel like three sermons put together in one. I guess it probably is in some senses. But in uh, chapter 24, I'm going to read almost all of this. There's a little repetitive part that I won't read. I'll show you that when we get to it. But we want to see this as Isaac marries Rebekah, beginning in verse 24. Now Abraham was old. Well advanced in years, and the Lord had blessed Abraham in all things. And Abraham said to his servant, the oldest of his household, who had charge of all that he had, put your hand under my thigh that I may make you swear by the Lord, the God of heaven and God of the earth, that you will not take a wife for my son from the daughters of the Canaanites, among whom I dwell, but will go to my country and to my kindred and take a wife for my son Isaac." The servant said to him, Perhaps the woman may not be willing to follow me to this land. Must I then take your son back to the land from which you came? Abraham said to him, See to it that you do not take my son back there. The Lord, the God of heaven, who took me from my father's house and from the land my kindred, who spoke to me and swore to me, to your offspring I will give this land, he will send his angel before you. And you shall take a wife for my son from there. But if the woman is not willing to follow you, then... You will be free from this oath of mine. Only you must not take my son back there. So the servant put his hand under the thigh of Abraham his master and swore to him concerning this matter. Now the obvious concern in chapter 24 is finding a suitable wife for Isaac. First, because he wants one. It's a love story, really, when we get to the end. But in order for the line of promise to pass through Isaac, as God has ordained, Isaac needs a wife so that he can have offspring, and so that it can continue. It's Abraham's job to find a wife for his sons. This is going to be an arranged marriage, which is a fantastic tradition, my opinion. And Abraham wants Isaac to marry a girl from his people in Mesopotamia. Abraham had a wife from Mesopotamia when God called him, and he certainly doesn't want Isaac to marry a Canaanite girl. I can think of two reasons why. One, because the Canaanites are a cursed people by God. Remember Ham's interactions with Noah and the curse upon the Canaanites. And two, because Abraham does not want gifts from the Canaanites. He doesn't want the Canaanites to give his son a bride, especially a wife that would lead Isaac to assimilate into Canaanite culture. The promised line is to be a separate and a distinct people who will receive the land from God. They're not supposed to just kind of move in and assimilate with the cursed people. But Abraham's too old to make the trip. So he sends his most trusted servant. And he makes him take an oath by placing his hand under Abraham's thigh. That's a very odd way to take an oath, we think. And I think it should remain that way. So, uh, it's just the way they did it. The servant is to get a wife for Isaac only from Abraham's family. And he's never to take Isaac to Mesopotamia. Isaac must remain in the promised land of Canaan. And the servant agrees. Mission accepted. What should stand out to us is God's sovereign, providential guidance throughout this entire episode. God will bring about his promises. Even so, this is a mission of faith. 
Great faith. In verse 7, Abraham informs the servant, The Lord, the God of heaven, will send before you his angel, and you shall take a wife for my son from there. So the servant is to place his faith in God and in this promise from God through Abraham the prophet. Remember, that's who he is. Pick up in verse 10. Then the servant took his master's camels and departed, taking all sorts of choice gifts from his master. And he arose and went to Mesopotamia, to the city of Nahor. And he made the camels kneel down outside the city by the well of the water at the time of evening, time when women came out to draw the water. And he said, O Lord, God of my master Abraham, please grant me success today and show steadfast love to my master Abraham. Behold, I am standing by the spring of water, and the daughters of the men of the city are coming out to draw water. Let the young woman to whom I shall say, Please let down your jar that I may drink. And who shall say, Drink, and I will water your camels. Let her be the one whom you have appointed for your servant Isaac. By this I shall know that you have shown steadfast love to my master. Before he'd finished speaking, behold, Rebekah, who was born to Bethuel, the son of Milcah, the wife of Nahor, Abraham's brother, came out with her water jar on her shoulder. The young woman was very attractive in appearance, a maiden whom no man had known. She went down to the spring and filled her jar and came up. Then the servant ran to meet her and said, please give me a little water to drink from your jar. She said, drink, my lord. And she quickly let down her jar and her hand and gave him a drink. When she had finished giving him a drink, she said, I will draw water for your camels also until they have finished drinking. So she quickly emptied her jar and into the trough and ran again to the well to draw water, and she drew for all his camels. The man gazed at her in silence to learn whether the Lord had prospered his journey or not. When the camels had finished drinking, the man took a gold ring weighing a half shekel and two bracelets for her arms weighing ten gold shekels and said, Please, tell me whose daughter you are. Is there room in your father's house for us to spend the night? She said to him, I am the daughter of Bethuel, the son of Milcah, whom she bore to Nahor. She added, We have plenty of both straw and fodder and room to spend the night. The man bowed his head and worshipped the Lord and said, Blessed be the Lord, the God of my master Abraham, who has not forsaken his steadfast love and his faithfulness towards my master. As for me, the Lord has led me in the way to the house of my master's kinsmen. Then the young woman ran and told her mother's household, about these things. This guy's great. <laughs> you got to love this guy. Look, look at his diligence. Look at his wisdom. Look at his faith. Look at his prayers. Look at his worship. He devises a test for a suitable wife. The next matriarch of the Hebrew people. He will ask for a little drink, but... The kind of girl he's looking for will not just give him a little drink, but will freely offer to water all of his camels. It's not a presumptuous prayer. He's not asking for a miracle. He's just asking for her to do some, some very basic things that would show her character. Just a test of hospitality and, and industriousness. And before he even finishes the prayer, God sends Rebecca to the well. He's still praying in Jesus' name, and here comes Rebecca down to the well. Rebecca is from Abraham's family, and she's young and attractive, and a virgin. She quickly gives him a drink and then freely runs to water all ten camels. Do you know how much water a camel can drink? Every commentary I read said at least 25 gallons. 
25 gallons. And she waters all 10 of them with her maybe two and a half to three and a half gallon jar until they stop drinking. And the servant watches in amazement. Then the servant asks if she can put him and his men and the camels up for the night. And she says, yes, we have plenty. Come. And she takes him home. See, he had prayed in faith that God would provide a suitable wife. Rebecca is hospitable, hardworking, generous. She's a woman of high character. And the servant gives her gifts. Pick up in verse 29. Rebecca had a brother whose name was Laban. Laban ran out toward the man to the spring. As soon as he saw the ring and the bracelets on his sister's arms and heard the words of Rebekah, his sister, thus the man spoke to me. He went to the man, and behold, he was standing by the camels at the spring. He said, Come in, O blessed of the Lord. Why do you stand outside? For I have prepared the house and a place for the camels. So the man came to the house and unharnessed the camels and gave straw and fodder to the camels, and there was water to wash his feet and the feet of the men who were with him. Then food was set before him to eat, but he said, I will not eat until I have said what I have to say. And Laban said, speak on. Now Bethuel is Rebekah's father, and he's around. We'll see him in a minute. But it was common for the oldest brother to the household to have authority in these cases, particularly if Bethuel's maybe old. And you know this Laban if you know the story of Jacob. Laban acts hospitable because he saw the ring and the bracelets that the servant gave to Rebekah. And Laban says, let's eat. But the servant is on a mission, and he refuses to eat until he makes his proposal. It's a proposal of marriage for Isaac, which he does by recounting to Laban everything that we just read take place. So, verses 34 to 48 are almost word for word what we've already read. Uh, with just a few minor additions. In verse 35, the servant says that the Lord has greatly blessed Abraham. In verse 36, he makes it clear that Isaac is the sole heir of all that blessing. And in verse 38, he emphasizes that, that the heir's bride must come from Abraham's clan. Check that box. Nahor's Abraham's brother. All of this makes for a very attractive proposal. It is, after all, his mission to secure a suitable bride for Isaac. And with God's leading, he's found her in Rebecca. So let's skip down that recount to verse 49. <clears throat> now then, if you are going to show steadfast love and faithfulness to my master, tell me. And if not, tell me. that I may turn to the right hand or to the left. Then Laban and Bethuel answered and said, The thing has come from the Lord. We cannot speak to you, good or bad. Behold, Rebekah is before you. Take her and go. And let her be the wife of your master's son, as the Lord has spoken. When Abraham's servant heard the words, he bowed himself to the earth before the Lord. And the servant brought out jewelry of silver and of gold and garments and gave them to Rebekah. He also gave to his, her brother and to her mother costly ornaments. And he and the men who were with him ate and drank, and they spent the night there. When they rose in the morning, he said, Send me away to my master. Her brother... And her mother said, let the young woman remain for us a while, at least, at least ten days. After that, she can go. But he said to them, do not delay me, since the Lord had prospered my way. Send me away that I may go to my master. They said, 
Well, let us call the young woman and ask her. And they called Rebekah and said to her, Will you go with this man? She said, I will go. So they sent away Rebekah, their sister, and her nurse, and Abraham's servant, and his men. And they blessed Rebekah, and they said to her, Our sister, may you become thousands of ten thousands, and may your offspring possess the gate of those who hate him. Then Rebekah and her young women arose and rode on the camels and followed the man. Thus the servant took Rebekah and went his way. Well, Laban and Bethuel are accept the servant's proposal of marriage from Isaac to Rebekah, saying it's, it's from God, just as you've told us. What else can we say? The servant is on a mission, and he's ready to leave the very next day. But seeing all the silver and gold gifts that the servant has given him, Laban and her mother seek to delay him, probably, in my opinion, to leverage a few more gifts from him. But when they, when they ask Rebekah, she says, I'll go. I'll go. Words of faith. I'll go. They send Rebekah with servants and a blessing. Did you hear that blessing? Did you hear the blessing? May you become thousands and ten thousands. And may your offspring possess the gate of those who hate him. It's the exact same blessing that God gave Abraham in chapter 22. In fact, Moses wants us to see that Rebekah is very much like Abraham. That's how we know she's the right and suitable spouse. Rebecca and Abraham are hospitable. Remember Abraham's hospitality? And resourceful. Both have received the same blessing to be a multitude and that their offspring would possess the gates of their enemies. And both have, both have now left their home and their people for the promises of God. Let's pick up in verse 62. Now Isaac had returned from Beer Lahoy Roy and was dealing, or excuse me, dwelling in the Negev. And Isaac went out to me, me, excuse me, meditate in the field toward evening. And he lifted up his eyes and saw, and behold, there were camels coming. And Rebekah lifted up her eyes, and when she saw Isaac, she dismounted from the camel and said to the servant, Who is that man walking in the field to meet us? The servant said, It is my master. So she took her veil and covered herself. And the servant told Isaac all the things that he had done. Then Isaac brought her into the tent of Sarah, his mother, and took Rebekah, and she became his wife, and he loved her. So Isaac was comforted after his mother's death. Now apparently, Isaac is, is sojourning on his, now, on his own now, and he lifts up his eyes to see Rebekah, and at that exact same moment, Rebecca lifts up her eyes to see Isaac. She covers her face in modesty with her veil, and she becomes Isaac's wife, and Isaac loves her. Love story, right? And we have a new patriarch and a new matriarch of the Hebrew people in Isaac and Rebecca. <clears throat> the promises are being passed down. It's a love story. But it's more than about just this one woman. This one woman impacts all the generations of the promises. It's more than a love story about Isaac and Rebekah. It's a love story about God choosing to love sinners. The Lord chooses one family to bless. 
And through them comes the one who will save sinners from every family. That's what's going on theologically. We've got the promise of the sea. But in another way, sub-theme to that, we have hope in God's providence by prayer. I hope you've seen some of that. Moses doesn't describe when Rebekah came to saving faith, but she clearly has. In his providence, God causes her to appear at the well just at the right time. And through Abraham's servant, God calls her to leave her people and to seek the promises of Isaac's wife in Canaan. And she responds by faith, I will go. Abraham is fully hopeful in the mission because God has sent his angel before his servant. And this servant was hopeful in view of God. You can see that he loves and serves Abraham, can't you? This man loves his master, and he serves his master, and he's taken an oath that he will do what his master has called him to do, and that he loves and serves God. He believes Abraham the prophet when he tells him that God is with him. He has placed his faith in God's promise to Abraham, which is being passed down to Isaac. That though his seed, through his seed, all the peoples of the world will be blessed. So he, he bows his head. He bows his head and worships the Lord. He doesn't worship Abraham's God, although the Lord whom he worships is Abraham's God. He worships the Lord. He's not just blessing Abraham's God, he's blessing God. And what's highlighted for us, as much as anything else, is his hopefulness in prayer. His hopefulness in prayer. Faith in God directs us to prayer. Faith in God directs us, you and me, believers in the Lord Jesus Christ, to pray. Look at the faith of this servant. You can see it in his prayers. He takes on this impossible mission because of his hope that God will answer his prayers. Our prayers to God are evidence of our faith in God. Our prayers show what we really think about God. In the same way that prayerlessness shows what a person believes, which is nothing. Our prayers show who we really are. When we pray, we really are clinging to the gospel. Clinging needfully to the promises of God. Our prayers should reveal that we are always, always, always depending on Christ. God provides an answer to our prayers that accord with his will. Even today, you can pray according to God's will. He will answer it. The Bible says so. Jesus says so. Do you go without praying and asking God for the things that you need when Jesus says just ask and God will give them to you? I think that many of us, much of the time, do. And so James is right to say, you have not, because you ask not. Not presumptuous prayers. Not prayers about my parking spot in front of Hannaford, which is what I typically pray for. Not those prayers. Although God does answer them sometimes. Prayers to be faithful. Prayers to believe. Prayers to live with hope, not despair. Prayers to tell others about Jesus, as we ought. Prayers that say our hearts desire for the lost to be saved. 
prayers that say we desire for the glory of God to, to fill the earth as the waters cover the seas. God provides in answer to our prayers that accord with his will. He answers big prayers and little prayers in real time in our daily lives in service to him. You remember in Acts, you, you think I'm overreaching. You remember in Acts when Ananias was afraid to go to Paul because he was the persecutor of the church. And Jesus, Jesus assured him saying, he prays. It's okay. He's a believer now because... He prays. We believe in the gospel. We give ourselves over to God in prayer, like the servant. That's another way that we show that we're living by faith, not by sight. By asking God to show us and to provide. I wonder how many people snicker at us when we Thank the Lord for food at the dinner table in a restaurant. What are those people doing? What a goofy table full of idiots. Can't make any sense. Heads or tails out of that stuff. What a waste of time. Use your sight. Look around you. Get what you got to get now. Here. But we walk by faith. And those who walk by faith pray to the Lord of their faith. He's a good heavenly father. And he supplies your needs. We have one last account to look at. It begins in verse 20, or chapter 25. <clears throat> Excuse me. It is that time of the year. Let me read chapter 25, verses 1 to 18. Abraham took another wife whose name was Keturah. She bore him Zimran, Jokshan, Medan, Midian, Ishbak, and Shua. Jokshan fathered Sheba and Dedan. The sons of Dedan were Asherim, Ledeshim, and Leumim. The sons of Midian were Ephah, Epher, Hanak, Abida, and Eldah. All these were children of Keturah. Abraham gave all he had to Isaac. But to the sons of his concubines, Abraham gave gifts. And while he was still living, he sent them away from his son Isaac, eastward to the east country. These are the days and years of Abraham's life. 175 years, Abraham breathed his last and died in a good old age, an old man full of years, and was gathered to his people. Isaac and Ishmael, his sons, buried him in the cave at Machpelah, in the field of Ephron, the son of Zoar the Hittite, east of Mamre, the field that Abraham purchased from the Hittites. There, Abraham was buried with his wife, Sarah. After the death of Abraham, God blessed Isaac, his son. And Isaac settled at Beer Lahai Roy. These are the generations of Ishmael, Abraham's son, whom Hagar, the Egyptian, Sarah's servant, bore to Abraham. These are the names of the sons of Ishmael, named in the order of their birth, Nebaioth, firstborn of Ishmael, and Keter, Abdeel, Mibsham, Mishma, Duma, Masa, Hadad, Tima, Jetur, Nafish, and Kedemah. These are the sons of Ishmael, and these are their names by their villages and by their encampments. Twelve princes, according to their tribes. These are the years of the life of Ishmael, 137 years. He breathed his last and died, and was gathered to his people. They settled from Havilah to Shur, which is opposite Egypt in the direction of Assyria. 
He settled over against all his kinsmen. In chapter 23, it was all about the promised land. In chapter 24, it was about the promised seed. And in the first half of 25 here, it's about the promise of the blessing. That Abraham and Isaac and his descendants would be a blessing to the nations. And after Sarah, I believe, Abraham takes a wife and has many sons and grandsons. God is fulfilling his promise that Abraham will be a father of many nations. Not just the promised line, but of many nations. Moses is clear that Isaac alone is the heir to the promises. Abraham sends these sons away to become their own separate nations. And he gives gifts to them. And in this way, Abraham is fulfilling that promise that he will bless the nations. Here are all of these nations going out and he's giving gifts to them. He blesses them here by giving them gifts. It's another small way in which one of the promises is fulfilled. That Abraham would be a blessing to the nations. So in these three chapters, we see the promises of God continuing. Death does not stop them, and the generations do not lose them, because God is sovereign and determined to bring about his everlasting promises of land, of Christ, and of a blessing. And we've also examined a couple of sub-themes, our, our future hope and our hope in prayer. And there is here one more sub-theme for us to examine. Right next to each other in the same chapter is recorded the death of Abraham and the death of Isaac. And these two men's deaths provide some subtle but significant contrasts. We met Abraham when he was 75 years old. He lived 100 years in the land of Canaan. So he was 175 years old when he died. That sounds like a good old age, doesn't it? Oh, that sounds like a good old age to me. Ishmael breathed his last at 137 years of age and he died. There's no mention that 137 years is a good old age. Isn't it though? It's a pretty good old age. In fact, there's, there's no mention of Ishmael's old age at all just that he died. Moses is not saying, oh, Abraham lived a long life and, ah, you know, it's the best any of us can really hope for, you know? So don't cry at the funeral. He lived a good old age. No. Moses is saying that his old age was good. Good as in godly. And that his years were full Full as in satisfied. We hear this in Psalm 92. Beginning in verse 12. The righteous flourish like the palm tree and grow like a cedar in Lebanon. They are planted in the house of the Lord. They flourish in the courts of the Lord. They still bear fruit in old age. They are ever full of sap and green to declare that the Lord is upright. He is my rock, and there is no righteousness apart from him. That's Abraham in his old age. His last years were full and satisfying because he was satisfied in Christ. But that's not Ishmael. 
Ishmael was a great bowman. Ishmael did father 12 princes. Think of that, princes. Ishmael prospered. And Ishmael died apart from Christ. This term old man does not imply decrepitude. It implies dignity and honor. Abraham was an old man. Abraham was honored. Ishmael was not. Ishmael settled over and against his kinsmen. He was always fighting, always grabbing to prosper in this world. But Abraham was being satisfied over the years because he was being sanctified over the years. He was desiring Christ. So don't enter your old age without knowing Christ. Don't enter your old age without knowing Christ. Don't enter the next year without knowing Christ. Don't wait for the next day to know him. Know him now. Don't live your old age without pursuing and growing in your desire for Christ. You haven't arrived yet, dear saint. Press on. We can also contrast Abraham's and Ishmael's blessings. What do you understand the blessed life to be? Think for just a moment. What do you understand the blessed life to be? We might look at Ishmael and say, man, that guy has it all. That guy has it all. He's confident, he's self-assertive, he's aggressive, and he's successful. In chapter 17, verse 20, God did bless Ishmael, didn't he? God blessed Ishmael for Abraham's sake. Abraham, for your sake, I will make Ishmael 12 princes. Ishmael's blessings are for this life only. For the sake of his godly father, not for his sake. It's a hard truth, but your children must come to Christ on their own. Ishmael's prospering, but that prospering in this life, on this world, where he was, was for the purpose and the blessing of Abraham. Don't mistake God's common grace in your life for his saving grace. Worldly blessings are no sign of spiritual blessings. None whatsoever. Ishmael never wanted or sought God's blessings to Abraham. But Isaac did. Isaac did. Isaac saw and embraced the blessings of Abraham which were passed down to him as surely as he embraced Rebekah, his wife. He was following through on the promises of God. Isaac believes and he is blessed beyond earthly prosperity. God's good gifts are spiritual gifts. 
You must want to know God and to be found in Him now. I think the final practical lesson here is just that we're to pray and to seek hope in Christ. If we're to be found in Christ now, we must seek Him. Throughout today's text, we have seen that you must seek God's blessing. The way to God's blessing is for you yourself to cry out to God in prayer. It's not enough for your parents to cry out to God for you or someone else. You must seek Christ. And if you will, you will find Him. Do you know that that's a promise in the Bible? If you will seek Him, if you will genuinely seek Him, Lord, I want to know you, you will know Him. It's His promise. And so you must pray. Pray. Pray to the God who sees and hears you. Ask for faith and salvation. Ask for hope and sanctification. God delights in hearing our prayers. All heaven rejoices in the salvation of just one sinner. And our Heavenly Father delights in giving us good gifts. Full years. Everlasting life. Blessings of joy and ongoing rejoicing. If you really want the blessings of God, if you really want Jesus, then ask for them. Ask for them. Heavenly Father, we are so grateful for your word that teaches us and instructs us and guides us. Thank you for guiding us to yourself, to your promises which are good, to life which is good, to blessing, which is good. You draw us to all good things in Christ. And the best thing of all is Christ, that you give us him. He's your promise to us. And so, Father, we pray that all would be saved who hear this word, and all would be sanctified who hear this word, and that your church would be built up in love for one another, and on mission and gospel proclamation for you. And all for your glory. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.